Hello, everyone. Greg Vendian here. Welcome to the podcast where we talk about all different types of music and get into some very geeky details. And today will be no exception because I am joined by a very well-known producer. He's a recording engineer, mix engineer, and he's been so on many classic recordings, not the least of which is the first two XTC records, White Music and Go To. But he's also produced the Dukes of Stratosphere, who are somehow related to XTC. Maybe we can figure out that. And uh, also, he's produced Radiohead and Bebop Deluxe and so many other people. Shiv Kumar Sharma, which is something I want to ask him about. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the program today, Mr. John Leckie. Hi. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> so glad you could be here. So glad that... Uh, Mr. Partridge could connect us and we can have some fun talking about him and yeah. talking about talking some, about him. Yeah. Behind his ears will be burning. Won't yes, they? a little bit. <laughs> but yeah, John, I'm, I'm so pleased that you could take the time today. And, you know, I'm so very curious about your tape op sort of um, uh, apprenticeship, if it, if it could be called that at Abbey Road and other studios and um, some of your early experiences where you're seeing the music being made. Uh, how did you get into that situation to begin with? Um, well, how did I get into it to begin with? I went to college. I went to school. I went to college. I got some A levels. Never went to university. Uh, couldn't get the mathematics. You know, I could get the physics and the and geography were the A levels, the advanced levels I got. But anyway, I, I saw. I somehow I wanted to work in film or television. And I saw a course, uh, television and film course, which I went to, did two years there and um, worked in that morning. They offered me a job at the BBC and then I, I, um, I, I didn't want to do that. I turned that down, television companies. This is 1968, 69, I suppose. I was like 18. And um, I got a job in a little film company just dubbing theatre in Soho. Uh, and I kept thinking, what else can I do? You know, what else can I do? I know I'll write to all the recording studios in London. Now, I'm not a musician. You know, I've been going to gigs since I was 13. I mean, I saw the Stones in 1963 and the Yardbirds at the Marquee. I was there always, all through those mid-period 60s. John Mao's Blues Breakers just followed them everywhere. Um, hey, let's let's pause there for a second. Gigs that you saw like that, <laughs> I'd love to hear that. <laughs> okay, um, uh, let's see. Going back, going back, the, 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 I live I live in North London near a place called Kilburn or Labrick Grove. You probably know Portobello Road, Notting Hill Gate. North of there, uh, I lived, and even north of that is a place called Kilburn and up there still there is Kilburn State which is 1930s built um, uh, cinema not a theatre it's a cinema although there's a huge probably the biggest in Britain Wurlitzer organ which played during the interval and it rose up from the screen you know, the, the curtains would draw across the screen and the, the Wurlitzer would come up and the, they'd come and serve ice cream and things but and it was massive I think it's 6,000 people you know but um, it's still it's still there, Kilburn State. But round the back, round the side, was Kilburn State Ballroom, which was a ballroom for dancing, 
Um, I didn't have a balcony. It was quite small. And later it became a bingo hall. And in that ballroom on a Friday night, they used to have bands. And I saw the Stones, the swinging blue jeans, Gene Vincent, um, uh, I'm trying to think of some other, Screaming Lord Such, uh, those kind of bands. And I was like just 13, I just turned 12, you know, and there was no alcohol. And then everyone said, oh man, you have to go and see the Yardbirds at the Marquee because they freak out. And I, what do you mean they freak out? Well, they, they get, uh, the audience all jumps around and goes berserk. And I'm going, well, I don't fancy that. Is it like a fight or something? And, no, 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 it's not like that at all. So we did go uh, on my, uh, it was actually my 15th birthday. We went to um, uh, the Yardbirds at the Marquee. And sure enough, when it went to the, so this is with Eric, you know, when it went to the solo, the whole audience, and people would jump up and down and throw their arms around. And it was like, he's okay. He's just freaking out, you know. <laughs> this, so, of course, continued for a few years in London. <laughs> what was the, the lineup of the Yardbirds at that point besides Clapton? Uh, Keith Ralph, uh, Jim McCarty, Chris Dreyer, and um, Paul, who would have been... Uh, Oh, I don't know. Is Paul Samuel Smith in that? Yes, he would be. Yeah. Yeah. He hadn't left yet, of course. Mm. So, yeah, it was a normal band. What made and the record Five Live Yardbirds at the Live at the Marquee was made um, just a month before. And they were playing like every Friday night they would um, play the Marquee. Anyway, I then, of course, discovered music and all sorts of things that you discover when you're 15, 16 years old in London and staying out late. And we used to we used to just um, we used to go to a place called Klux Clique, which is in West Hampstead. Klux Clique with K's um, is above a, the Railway Tavern, above a, 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 a big pub by West Hampstead Station. And the upstairs room was called Klux Clique. And originally it was a jazz club where they'd have traditional kind of jazz playing. And the guy was putting on um, Alex's Corner and different people, pretty much the same bill that was happening at the Marquee, although a bit more... What could you say? A bit more, uh, uh, not as dancey, not as, not as. It wasn't the West End because it was Hampstead, so there was a bit more maturity, you know. And even at that time, people would clap after the solo. So whenever Eric or whoever was playing a solo, if you saw Family and there was a, the guy who would play the clarinet or the sax, you know, in Family, and it was a solo, people, it was tradition to clap after the solo, like formally, you know, it was a kind of jazz thing that came left over from that. So yeah, we saw every Tuesday, Thursday night, we were at Klutz Clique, Fleetwood Mac, 10 years after, they played on the cheat night, they played on the Thursday. So it was, I think, five and six, which in old money, five shillings and sixpence, would be 25, 27 and a half pence. So, you know, that's how much it costs to get in. <laughs> in today's money, it was, it was five and six. And on a Tuesday, it was more expensive. It was seven and six. Okay, now you're and, just rubbing it in. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and there you could drink, of course. You know, it was a licensed sort of pub. So, and we were all mods. So we were all drinking Bacardi and Coke and whiskey and Coke and things. and in our best Carnaby Street gear and stuff. Um, but no, at that time, and it kind of moved because then we saw, I could, I could make a list. Uh, I'm just off the top of my head, but uh, um, Brian Auger Trinity with Julie Driscoll, with Julie Driscoll dressed and, you know, with the eyes and, and stuff. And Graham Bond organization, I tell you, it's the best, still the best band I've ever seen. 
Brought Grand Bundle organization with Jack Bruce, yeah, before Jack Bruce, before Cream and everything. Grand Bond at Klutz Clique is just fantastic. There is a CD of it live at Klutz Clique, but it's really badly recorded. Um, the BBC Grand Bond sessions are really good if you're into that. But he just had this great voice and yeah. dangerous. Was Ginger, was Ginger on drums at that point? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's Ginger and Jack Bruce and Grand Bond playing uh hammond singing and sax all at the same time and really sweaty and he's got this great hair and you know they're all just like fantastic um grand bond and then john Mayles through with, with john Mayles with eric clapton and and then into and, and we used to go to see john Mayles. you never knew if you were going to get peter green or eric clapton whether the new guy was going to be playing or eric would mm -hmm. be back um, which I guess is 66, 65, 66, yeah. Um, so I went to loads of gigs and when I went to college and everything and kind of discovered Pink Floyd. We took, you were saying about film and the visual element of music. Well, Pink Floyd and Jimi Hendrix was very much, I guess, psychedelic music. They It became like an image. It became a moving picture as you listen to the music kind of thing and it's almost like the music was constructed to to show you visuals you know um and so i thought i know because I, I was not happy in this film company, i'll write to all the recording studios <laughs> so i wrote to all the studios and um abbey road was the only one out of five that answered and uh i got the interview and i got the job and took it and uh and that was the my whole life changed you know i never never kind of went back it was totally you know because it was so time consuming intense you know i mean seven days a week uh it's just studio and sleep really for for quite a few years really for probably about 10 years but particularly when you first start off and you get all these offers and things it's not it's not so much the people saying oh i'm going to be working with one of the beatles or the pink floyd mm -hmm. it was the idea of doing something with a team of kind of like-minded people you know and you kind of you got a result at the end of it you know you you, you had the finished record of course and there was the record you had to cover and uh, so it was almost as good as a film i suppose i think the thing that i didn't like about film was there were so many people involved i mean this is before television or or anything camcorders or anything like that but actually um you know running a fit and the union thing and everything about making a film you know i had an eight mil camera and i've still got some crazy stuff from that time but nothing that um i would ever show people kind of thing you know well you were living that time it's it's quite an incredible period and you were soaking it all in yeah so you got accepted at abbey road and your mind must have been blown on a daily basis um not daily no <laughs> weekly maybe no i mean it's a lot of hard work and you have to do a lot of other things that you're not really into i mean it can be really um what's it say challenging i suppose is the word challenging to do all these things you know um and you learn about i suppose opera operating really um uh was operating equipment which is relatively easy, you know, push the button, don't push the button, but you have to know when to push the button sure. and you have to know when someone tells you to push the button, 
<laughs> to push it but you also have to question who's the guy that's telling you to push the button like i, I was talking to someone about this of, the, uh, of when you're when you're running the tape and someone says stop you have to um you have to you have to ascertain who's saying stop whether the producer's saying stop doesn't mean that you're gonna you're gonna stop the t you know he's the one in charge you know it might be the keyboard player that's in charge or the singer or something um so being a tape op is very um like you it's a good position to work out the power structure in the room of um uh, when you're making a record um yeah so uh that's uh that's kind of how i how i started really but i've always even although i'm not a musician and i'm still not a musician you know a lot of a lot of producers and sometimes i'm really embarrassed about that that i'm i can't go to a piano and find harmonies or pick up the guitar and say oh play it like this kind of thing the way andy can <laughs> um but you know, because I've kind of, I guess, because I've got that rock and roll music in my soul, you know, I've been there all the time, you know. Oh, the, the ear is there. The ear, yeah. you know, the ear clearly is there. Yeah. And I think, the, the, you know, and the other thing, of course, is the language is when a producer is talking to people and, you know, um, giving them confidence and uh, all those kind of things, the energy that you bring to it and every every record and different people are that I work with, you know, always different, you know, it's a different gang kind of thing. Right. It's, it's uh, give a compliment before you give a critique, right? <laughs> That's there, there are some, uh, some Abbey Road tape op situations that I wanted to ask you about, if you can recall now, obviously I know this is a long time ago, but didn't you do tape op on an Ornette Coleman, uh, London symphony orchestra date? <laughs> Ornette Coleman. Yes, it's on the list. <laughs> and what's um uh it was called Skies Skies Across America or Skies of America. America. And it was orchestral recording in the studio too. Tony Clark was the engineer. And the two of us were just we were probably the only two on the staff that knew who Ornette Coleman was. And we were like dumbfounded. Oh my god, you know, we're gonna get up tomorrow morning and be in the studio with Ornette Coleman what he was going to do and of course he never turned up until the very end so and it was only a day so it was a, it was you know 10 till 1 and then two a break for lunch 2 30 till 5 30 but during that time you recorded both you know side one in the morning so and then he was going to take tapes back to america and put the sacks down but the orchestral recording of course was in itself uh, quite special just because it kind of it kind of floated as <laughs> any way I can describe it I've never heard it since um, it reminded me of those um, and I don't know who does those arrangements the John Lennon number nine dream which John kind of copied from uh, um, Harry Nilsson Pussycats uh, too many rivers to cross yeah. and the string arrangement if you listen to Pussycats with Harry Nielsen, too many rivers to cross, and then go to number nine, Dream. John kind of not copied, but he was there on, you know, he used the same string thing. But I've never worked out who that arrangement is. And as soon as I heard it, so the Ornette Coleman would have been, uh, oh, it's probably about the same period, of course. Yeah, the, the number nine, Dream is, is, is mid to late 70s, like 77, 78. So 
that's what they would do. That's what it was, was that kind of suspended string kind of shimmer that kind of never had any beat kind of thing. Yeah, and, it's all uh, about the different chords moving and the voices moving within the yeah. chord. And yeah, I worked with Ornette in 2000 on a chamber music project. Uh huh. So I was particularly interested to ask you about that because he's one of the first jazz guys to really dive in with full on classical and have the guts to hire the London Symphony. And that's what it would have been. Yeah. And um, yeah, he just came in like the last half hour. And I think he, he had he had a black like drape coat on, you know, kind of long, kind of almost like a, a funeral director's coat. You know, it was kind of very long drape and he looked immaculate, you know. He always did. A little bit. Yeah. And uh, and then he blew some sacks over it and okayed it, liked it. And that was it. And they took the tapes and I guess they did the rest of the recording in America. Wow, that's that's incredible. So so he did play over the orchestra or played over takes? He played over takes. No, he wasn't there when the orchestra recorded. He overdubbed. As I say, when all the orchestra had finished and gone, he came in. I guess it was morning, afternoon and evening. And he just came in in the evening, like seven till nine but he didn't do anything what could you say serious it was all a sound check kind of thing or a score check more than anything like okay uh, i don't think it had been edited either so this would have been on i guess 16 track okay and so it wasn't all played in one go there was the tape would have to be edited which which we never did would you have been responsible for miking the orchestra not me, because I was just a tape op. No, Tony Clark was the engineer, would be, had been responsible. But it was a standard thing, <laughs> standard thing. In Studio 2, it doesn't matter where you put the mic, it's going to sound good, believe me. <laughs> um, and with any instrument, as amazingly enough, you know, different mm -hmm. things you can do. Um, but no, the standard setup would be, um, well, you'd always have now they use a thing called a Decca tree, which is a surround sound thing with four mics. Um, but we only had two two speakers in those days. So <laughs> we, we we would just have two 87s or M50s. I think they're always the Neumann mics on high stands over the the whole orchestra over whatever's in the room kind of thing. Uh, and then when you listen, depending on what's playing, you can move them higher or lower up or down you could have some very distant it doesn't really work having them too far away you just have to put them in the right place and uh get something that's acceptable and then every violin depending on how many there were would be mic'd in pairs so if there's 24 violins you'd have 12 mics and put the, the mic between them and it'll pick up the two of them uh cellos you would just individually mic it's nothing and it was a stat almost like a standard setup and as i say in, in that that room in studio two uh, abbey road does have a magic sound that no matter where you put the mic you you're going to get something happening you know it's going to sound like good and quality and special well if you're going to bake a cake you want to start with the right ingredients and fresh eggs and that's it all the right <laughs> flavors right and then you can go from there that's um, it. You know, uh, there's a few th things that were happening around that time that that maybe uh, you would recall. Do you recall doing a session with Griffin 
Um, I do vaguely again remember doing a concession with Griffin, and this is a funny one because uh, I know I've got my name on the record. I, I remember I think I've got a copy of the record, and it's got my name about four or five times. Like every song, they credit the engineer, kind of thing. Um, no, it was in Studio One. Uh, which is the very big orchestral studio, you know, with the four second reverb. Mm. And the producer was a guy called Mike Thorne, who at the time worked for EMI. He was like an EMI house producer. Uh, he was a kind of journalist who somehow blagged his job, this job of being a producer when there was all these, I guess, engineer producers like me uh, who'd actually made records. Right. But he came in in, I guess, 76, 77, and he did that record live at the Roxy with all the punk bands with X-Ray Specs and all those people. Which And then he did Wire. And I think he like A&R'd and, and recorded the two or three Wire albums, which were on Harvest. He did a Soft Machine album, and I'd done the one before. You did Without Six and a, Seven, right? I did the Softs, yeah. Yeah, Six and Seven. Is that what it is? It's, I don't I think, know. I think it was those two, but so. just called. It's just the one I did is just called the Softs, um, not oh. bundles. It's after bundles, so I don't know how many there are on the Harvest label. Maybe two or three. He did a live record which had a kind of sit live in Paris, which he mixed, which became the one after the one I did. But the one I did was called the Softs, and it's got kind of blurred neon lights on. And the first day. Me and Pat Stapley, I was, you know, the engineer and stuff. And it was after I'd done Bebop Deluxe, I'd also been producing, but I wasn't um, employed as a producer. I was just a, a house engineer, really. And the day they turned up, the first thing we did is go to the pub. We all sat in the pub and then a chat and everything. And uh, they all shook hands. And Mike Ratledge, it obviously this was his going away party because he shook hands with everyone and said goodbye. <laughs> and he was the only original member. Mike Ratledge was the keyboard, was the organist, you see. And um, yeah, so he announced his he was leaving the band, and that was it. So it was down to Carl Jenkins, John Marshall, Roy Babington, and John Etheridge was the guitarist. Um, and they'd had some, they got some pieces together, but they never really had any direction. You know, it was like they would play a sequence like four times round and then another sequence two times round and then back to the first sequence, almost like a 12 bar blues or something um, in, in a repetitive kind of riff, kind of serial systems kind of thing. And then they'd do the take and this was all done live, of course, with no click, you know, and, and because I, well, I didn't know what to expect, of course, and they'd, they'd stop. And when it got to the end, they'd say to me, how is that, John? You know, and I became the producer because they were asking me how the take was and blah, 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 and what I felt about it. And, you know, it turned into a co-production thing just because there was no one else there and no one else making decisions, really, or no one else looking at the watch and thinking, you know, we've got to finish by Friday, you know, we've got to get the album mixed, recorded and mixed by Friday, you know. Um, so I can't, that's how I learned to produce was doing sessions like that in a way. Right, the, the zone between engineer and producer starts to close. Yeah, yeah. And you did often... you also work with Kevin Ayers? Yeah, as a tape op, yeah, Kevin Ayers and the whole world with, um, um, 
uh, I've forgotten his name now. <laughs> the tube that Mike Mike Oldfield, yeah, Mike Oldfield was the guitarist, and he was like, he was young, he was sixteen, I was at seventeen at the time, and all he did, um, he never had any shoes. He just wore the same clothes all the time, the old t-shirt. Hardly spoke to anyone, and just smoked spliff all the time. That smoked a joint all the time, and um, but when he played, of course, he was excellent. You know. And he's but playing he, with with his weird finger technique. Yeah, all that. Oh, well, there was so much else going on, on with Kevin Ayers and the whole world because there's Lowell Coxall, who was the sax player, who was pure jazz, and I knew he. You know, he was the star more more for me because I sort of knew I followed that kind of music. You know, I knew that Lowell Coxall was the special one there, and David Bedford was the keyboard player who did lots of string arrangements for nearly all of the Harvest artists. So he was always in as a string arranger for Roy Harper and, and Edgar Broughton. And um, so he was the keyboard player. And I can't remember the drummer, they had a crazy drummer. And, um, and then Kevin, who just had a bottle of red wine and a girlfriend <laughs> and a joint, you know, and his guitar, and that's all he needed, you know. And they put the, you know, I mean, the record's great. He got better, actually. I think he was going through a, not a very, not a, I, I can't really comment really what it was like because I was a tape op. Um, but it was good session, good time. I'm so glad to hear you mention Lowell Coxell. I had a lot of fun working with Lowell with uh, British guitarist Derek Bailey. Oh, yeah. I've, funny you should say, yeah, Derek Bailey, someone's, at Christmas, someone gave me his book, Derek Bailey, Improvisations. Fantastic. It's nature and practice. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Really got me into this whole idea. Well, it's just, you know, you kind of go, oh, improvisation. Yeah, I know that. You know, I know what that's all about. But it's not until you read the book, you realize this everything is improvised, really. And what's the <laughs> definition of improvisation? You know, improvisation is a chapter, improvisation and composition. You know, so how do you write a song? You have to to write a song. You have to start with improvisation, don't you? It's and so then true. improvisation depends on whether you're alone or whether you have an audience or whether you have your girlfriend with you, your friend or your enemy hmm. or a whole audience and you're still improvising or you're sitting in your room alone improvising. It's fascinating, the whole subject. I was really enthralled with the book, you know. If you can find it, there's a BBC documentary of Derek in a series. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. I've seen clips from it. I haven't yeah. seen the whole thing. I hope, hopefully it's out there somewhere because he kind of turned the book into that, that mini series, I think. Uh -huh. Yeah. So were you on the session for, uh, for All Things Must Pass? That's right. Yeah. That was one of the first things I did. So I started in February. And I guess April, around about this time of year, April, May was the start of um, All Things Must Pass. Um, yeah, that was quite, and that's, well, it's 50 years ago, you know, there's a, I think there's a box set coming out after the, this Plastic Ono band that's just come out, which I did after, but um, there should be a All Things Must Pass box set coming soon, which should be mammoth, you know. Um, yeah. Hours and hours. I mean, what what was the what were those sessions like? Uh, busy, busy they were. Late night sessions, you know, four four in the afternoon till eight in the morning, nine in the morning. Um, 
although they never when i looked at the dates of all things must pass they they weren't they were consecutive but it was never more than three days on the trot you know it was always like two 24 hour days and and then a week off and then a three 24 hour days and days off so it wasn't like crammed up you know but i you know it was it was great because for me and i just i just started you know i was i was obviously kind of nervous and meeting people i wasn't nervous about the beatles or about you know george harrison i was a little bit nervous about eric but i just kept away from eric <laughs> you know you know, um, and I was I was more friendly with Badfinger actually because I was younger and Badfinger. So I was twenty, and I guess Badfinger were twenty-one or even nineteen. They were the same age as me, whereas all the others, all Beatles, were twenty-five, twenty-six, and that's that's quite a difference between being twenty and twenty-six. You know, <laughs> so yeah, I instantly made friends with uh, Badfinger and. Um, but there were so many people on the session, you know, there was always not enough headphones and different things and people playing together, you know, there's like Jim Price and Bobby Keys playing all the horn parts live with the track, you know, there's two drummers, two bass players, um, uh, what's his name, Bobby Whitlock, Billy Preston. And then Phil Spector, and then George, of course, and <laughs> Phil Spector. Well, know. and then Alan White and Ringo? No, uh, Jim Gordon, who was um, Derek and the Dominoes. So Jim Gordon was actually a session drummer way before Derek and the Dominoes. It was the whole of Derek and the Dominoes, really, um, on Georgia. So yes, yeah, it was, it was a guy called Jim Gordon and Carl Radel, as well as Klaus Vorman. Mm -hmm. There's Carl Radel as well. And um, Bobby Whitlock was the keyboard player and helped write a lot of the songs, did all the organ. Um, guy called Gary Wright who played um, uh, piano as well, um, and it was funny because I, you know, I'd done an interview about this. All things must pass, and it all kind of comes back. And there was this guy called John Barham, who was the arranger, and he'd been there from the beginning oh. at George's house, and been writing all the parts out, like and the keys and all this kind of like keeping all the paperwork as it were together. And he was like the arranger. And so he was feeding Jim Price, Bobby Keys for the horn parts. He had them scored out and he'd just give them the notes and these kind of things. And um, so it's not the free for all that that one might imagine. No, uh, no, no, it was there was de there was demos kind of thing. No, it's not a free for all. But there was a lot of people, of course, and um, for, um, it was it all went down on eight track. You know, it's not, yeah, it's all down on eight track. All things must pass. And how you know, did you do that? How did you split that up? Um, I'm not quite certain of the split, but it's sometimes it's it's uh, it's based on one. Sometimes it's a stereo picture. I think I've never seen the track layout. I can't remember actually. I've never seen a tape box from that period. I've seen John Lennon tape boxes with the track split, but sometimes you would do. A stereo, I mean, you've got two drummers, you know, but you would do a stereo. I, I think you would put one drum kit on one one track and one drum, drum kit on the other, but you could just do a spread kind of thing because obviously you don't want bass drums and things ping-ponging 
you know, it's a difficult one, or they would favor one drummer kind of thing and just have Ringo in the background or, or the other guy in the background, probably. You can tell when you listen to the record who plays, you know, who's who's playing. You can pick Ringo out, and I think you can pick out Klaus Foreman as well on the bass of the different bass parts. Uh, each song, you know, was one of them's featured. Um, but yes, although it's eight track, it's it's actually only six track or seven track because you have to leave a track spare for the vocal. You see, um, you know, if you're going to go back and do the vocals, is <laughs> if you fill up the eight tracks, you've got no tracks left. It was, it was, it's it's kind of like that. But what happened with All Things Must Pass is that George then went to Trident Studios uh, with Ken Scott. And they had 16 track, so they transferred the eight track to 16 track and put on all the Harry Krishna voices and, and stuff. And um, and the strings as well. So the, the actual orchestral strings, funny enough, were recorded at Trident and not uh, not, uh, not at Abbey Road, but simply because they had 16 track and we only had eight. Um, the same thing happened with uh, Metal with Pink Floyd, which was I was a tape up on at the, be at the beginning for the, the following year, and we well, that was done on eight track at Abbey Road, and then we went to Air Studios and copied it onto sixteen track and and filled up the other eight, eight tracks really to make it, and then you had to mix it at Air, but it was actually mixed at Morgan, so you, you couldn't go back to Abbey Road because you couldn't play the tape, so. Abbey Road was well behind with uh, the track count, really. It stayed at eight track till, I guess, it didn't get 16 until 1972. Yeah. That's a little surprising. Yeah, whereas Trident and um, I think it's because, maybe it's, I don't know what this is, maybe because Abbey Road was sworn to Studer and Studer never really developed a 16 track, A80, never developed a 16 track till 71 or 72. Whereas the others were using Trident and Air were using 3M or um, or even uh, um, uh, what's it called the other one Ampex yeah with I think Trident had an Ampex and there was a 3M 16 track but no one really liked the 3M 8 tracks that we were using that's why they were reluctant this is real geek stuff <laughs> they were reluctant to um, to buy the eight the 16 track 3M because the eight track 3M caused them so much problems because the tape used to bounce. If you were spooling, because you would, if you're fast spooling a tape, you'd control it backwards and forwards. So it doesn't go full speed, but that you have to be really efficient and fun, get to the end, get to your spot. You know, it might be like 20 minutes, you got to spool. So you want to go as fast as possible, but not so it goes out of control. And sometimes it would bounce on the runners and sometimes it would just, yeah. bounce off you know just and that happened if that happens once you never let it happen again because you know the feel the feel of the machine but they were notorious the 3ms for breaking tape and that kind of thing um and i think also the other problem that they had maybe i'm wrong is with adt they because the head is like a loop so the the record heads here and the playback heads there so there's a good half second i guess you know seven and a half if you're running at 15 because you can run at 30 seven there's seven and a half inches from um the record head to the playback so you've got half a second delay and when it when it's the studio straight together 
it, it's a much smaller delay. Whether that makes any difference, I don't know. But the three M's were often breaking down and buttons, you know, you push the button boom, and the button would spring off, you know, <laughs> and you can't stop it because this, you know, those sort of things. It's a nightmare, you know. <laughs> John, you mentioned, you know, um, years, you know, hours and hours running the tape. And it's funny because people, um, Rack Studios, uh, phoned me up uh, some time ago now, actually, but they, they had a lot of requests for people wanting to use tape. So they've got their their old tape machines and people, oh, we want to do, we want to record on tape. And they phoned me up and said, do I know any tape ops, any good tape ops? Because, engine, you know, young, the, the young engineers have never run tape. They know anyone can press stop and start, but you do it for 12 hours a day at the whim of someone that wants it as fast as a computer stop second verse you know sing a line stop go back drop in do it again no do it again go back drop in do, and drop out don't drop out. you know you can't there's no redo button you know and people would just fuck up and people would be off sessions and the studio would get into a problem because they haven't got staff who are capable of running doing tape op duties which are which are really non-stop you know for the whole session yeah <laughs> Yeah, people think, oh, you're pressing a start and stop button. How hard could that be? <laughs> you're just you back there. So, yeah, right. You do hours it. a day with a load of crazy people shouting at you. <laughs> do you have any recollections from the Badfingers stuff? Um, not really, no, no. I think Mal Evans, it's the song No Matter What, with the, No Matter What You Are, with the Leslie guitar. Mm -hmm. I think Mal, Mal Evans produced that. He had the tape of it, and I can remember playing it in the studio. Maybe he was working at Apple. I don't think Apple Studio was working, but he, was, he had the tape, and he'd often, you know, at the end of the session, eight o'clock in the morning, <laughs> Mal would say, oh, can we play our Badfinger tape? Can we play ours now? You know, and... It was an eight track, you know, and that was no matter what. Wow. But it was, it, it was an eight track. It wasn't a mix kind of thing. Right. Mm. Um, so any recollections of Phil Spector on uh, All Things Must Pass? Um, he was great, really. I mean, he was <laughs> recollections. He was, he was great. Best dressed person, of course. You know, he always had his shades on, always the shades and, and, um, lots of stories to tell he was he was in control of the session i mean he was he he didn't touch the mixer i mean he didn't touch the equipment but he told told people told the engineer what to do told phil what to do and if something was changed or not different he'd often say oh you know the guitars are changed or something um and he'd also be telling people what to play, you know, if people embellished. It was just normal production, I realised when I start doing it myself, you know. Mm -hmm. After, like, take three or take four, the keyboard player would do a different chord shape. And you kind of go, hang on, you know, that's not that chorus doesn't sound as good as what it did before. And you'd work it out and you'd realise it's the keyboard player is playing a different chord shape or someone's up whatever and... And I can remember Phil Spector being very aware of all the parts that were going on, you know. Um, and, you know, you could recognize, I think what I learned from that, and which of course you do learn if you're in the studio, is how to recognize a good take, you know, how to recognize when it's good and when it's not good enough. 
you know, and also when you should uh, pack up and go home or when you should take a day off or when you should do another song. Come on, you're really happening now, you know. Finish the lyric, go and do that vocal, but just finish the lyric or something, you know. So that that kind of, um, I, I think when you're, a you know, when you sit on so many sessions, you do learn how to recognize a good take, you know, and what's uh, what you can patch up. You should, I mean, the dream is not not patching up and very often you do patch up and it's not as good. So, you know, every every song, every recording is different anyway. It's all got different values, really. Yeah, you're not looking for the same thing to define what a good take would be. Um, no. So what? We're, so can we assume that this all things must pass box set will have many, many takes that you're talking about of different things? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how they I did it, to be honest, I did hear the um, the uh, My Sweet Lord version, which was oh, there is a My Sweet Lord remix. Um, didn't think it was very good. They've got this thing now with with the Beatles is that they want all the effects taken off like John Lennon and even particularly All Things Must Pass the album because everyone says oh there's too much reverb Phil Spector he soaked it in reverb and things well that's what it is and you take it off and it never to me anyway it never sounds as good it never sounds as you know these things are enhancements you know really oh, yeah and I don't understand this thing with John Lennon of, uh, you know, let it be naked and doing, um, what's it called, double fantasy stripped back. Have you ever heard that? It's the most awful thing I've ever heard. Because I mean, I'd hear it just to, to understand what they're going for, because essentially what you're doing is talking about pre-produced. Yeah. Do mm. I want to hear pre-produced? Yeah. And compare it maybe in a class I would I would play you the produced and the and the not produced. Yeah. You can talk about what's going on in there. Yeah. But it's like when Beatles anthology came out, you know, you you knew why they were outtakes, why they didn't use them. <laughs> you know, you could tell that they just weren't as good as the what they did use, you know for different reasons you know either the vocal didn't make it or it was too fast or mm. you know, there was there was some change but you knew that the version you've heard before the version that you, you're used to is the best version you know you know that's an interesting period too for for george because this is a kind of his coming out from the beatles and it's a huge project what was his demeanor like in, in that situation he was um, he was great, really. I mean, he was quiet and encouraging. You know, he didn't he didn't he obviously he was sent the stage and everyone, but he wasn't sent to stage the way Phil Spector was sent to stage, um, or kind of or the way you know other members of the band, you know, and different people, you know, like Bobby Keys, big Texan would come in with his sax in the control room, you know, and think nothing of just blowing his sax along with the playback. You know? <laughs> uh, anyway, that was, but no, George would often be in the corner and I mean, everything focused on him, you know, he was always with his guitar. Again, even on the playback, they would come in and often George would keep his guitar be strumming with it and telling people different things. It was a big creative buzz, really, each song, you know, um, and uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of different people playing there, you know. 
Mm. What was George's interaction with Phil Spector like? Uh, it seemed good. They were having a lot of fun. Yeah, it was all a lot. It was all a lot of fun. I mean, there was no kind of heavy scenes or arguments. It was often accusations of wasting time because <laughs> oh. Phil, Phil Spector would start telling Lenny Bruce stories or stuff, you know, um, I don't know, LA traffic people or I don't know, I don't know what they were talking about, but often they would come in for a playback and talk for an hour or so, or Phil Spector would like hold court as it were um, and just tell stories really of different people. Um, a lot of American entertainment people that I didn't really know, you know. Um, yeah. And then you worked on uh, Plastic Ono Band? Yeah, so by what, September, I suppose, um, it was John and Yoko. Yeah, John and Yoko, Klaus and Ringo. Um, and it was it was totally, you know, it was much more relaxed and much more, um, uh, much more friendly, I suppose. Friendly is not the right word, really. It was just much more relaxed and, and open and things. And it started, I, I understand now that Phil Spector didn't come in until later on John's session. Um, but I can remember him being there all the time. But then again, I didn't do all the sessions, you know, other people, uh, there were other tape ops and other engineers working on Plastic Ono Band. Um, I did do all of the Yoko record because I was there when they recorded the um, the jam session, I suppose, where it came from, you know, um, uh, and basically they, they, the three of them, John, Klaus and Ringo, would play a, flat, a fast blues and then a slow blues um, and use up a reel of tape and then you'd listen back and he'd choose the best bits and that became why and why not on on the album and also that one that's uh dunga 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 paper shoes isn't it on this is the yoko album with some drum things and we had this modified btr tape machine that eddie klein had mod that modified and a btr is the big sort of valve mono thing that actually went at three different speeds it went seven and a half 15 and 30 it was one of the few machines at abbey road that went at 30 and you could have a very speed on it mm. um, it was just a quarter inch mono but eddie klein had built these um extra heads on it which were all aligned up on a runner and had outputs and amps and things you had to have a separate box and so you could had multiple delays really, but it was all coming off one tape kind of thing. Oh, that's so cool. Returns <laughs> each head would have a return on the mixer. Um, and you could wobble it, you know, you could vary the speed and wobble it kind of thing. Um, Flanging. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, that's the phasing thing. That's if you run it at fast speed and get it come off the sink head, but no, the, the, the very speed, but that all that tumbling that's going on on Plastic Ono Band on Yoko's record, you know, it's all tumbling over, it's all feedback and things. Um, that was a lot, you know, that was kind of them doing a mix. And again, playing back three, four, five, six times and choosing the best bits and then editing them all down. And then each day they would come in and 
what you had as a original 30 minute performance was edited, 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 edited and you would end up with Yoko saying, I want this bit from here to here, but I want you to repeat it three times. So she was just like a sampler, really. It was just like, I want, you know, I've got four bars and I want another three bars of those four bars kind of thing and then switch to this section you know mm. and it was like composing the song but out of tape loops that originally came from a 30 minute jam um anyway she they said between the two of them they seemed to know what was going on they were furiously talking john and yoko while they were doing it you know behind the mixer kind of thing so it's very collaborative yeah yeah i don't know what phil made of it at all Hmm. Phil Spector made of it at all. I don't know. He was just encouraging, you know, he was good. So did you also work on the first McCartney? Uh, I was a tape op. I was a tape op uh, for two sessions with John Kurlander, um, two daytime sessions when uh, I, can't, I really can't remember much about it. That was really when I first started, like February, uh, late February, March, 1970, mm. uh, which was maybe I'm amazed. I can't remember the other track. Again, someone came out with the recording sheets and it showed my name on it. And I had this, my only memory, <laughs> my only memory of working with McCartney is a being a bit terrified, a bit scared. I wasn't so terrified of George, but I was a bit terrified of Paul on his own with Linda yeah and we're at, we're in studio two and he was down in the studio him and linda i think they had the dog with them and everything um but anyway he was way down there and they had they were making tea and they had their own kettle which is quite unusual at the time you have your own kettle in your teapot and i'm just standing there wondering what to do when the session start and i look down and paul's like hey, hey, hey. so i go around i go what he says do you want a cup of tea and I said, oh, yeah, please. He says, it's orange Pico. Is that OK? Oh, yeah, 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 that's fine. And this this new boy, 20 year old new boy, you know, and Beatles asking me if I want orange Pico, you know. So anyway, he says, oh, tea's ready. Come down. So I go downstairs. And of course, I've never had orange Pico. And I think it's going to be bursting with orange. I think it's like fucking hot orange juice or something. But of course, it's just orange Pico. And I think is he given me the right is this really the orange pico tea because it didn't taste of orange juice that's all i remember of the session <laughs> but yeah he was uh and then and then of course he, he wouldn't have remembered me and then i was i did red rose speedway tracks for that i did high 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 well first of all i mixed sea moon which he'd done sea moon and um which he'd done at Morgan Studios. And he wanted to overdub hand claps, more hand claps, which of course are a nightmare to do. Hand claps are very difficult to get a good sound on unless it's happening. Um, anyway, we, we overdub hand claps and then he wanted to mix it. And it was, we spent a day doing that. And then he came in with the band with high, high, high. And of course, when the band showed up, they were high, high, <laughs> you know, they were just like, <laughs> Bit, a bit boozy and stuff, a bit uh -huh. boozy more than anything. Um, and they just come back from Wings Across Europe, which was not Wings Across America. So they'd done this Wings Across Europe tour and they were in 
touring mode when they got in the studio. And I guess we spent, I think someone said I did 67 takes of high, high, high spread over four days and they would come in, you know, for the whole, you know, a 12 hour day and do this song, which is pretty simple kind of rock and roll around again. Don't do I met you at the station, you know, and we finally got the take and he did all the vocals and, you know, I mean, it was a 10 day, I suppose, session. But during that time, I also did different things on Red Rose Speedway, which was the medley um, Lazy Dynamite, um, which wasn't very good because it was just Paul on piano. And a lot of the time the band were waiting to play. So every time you did a take, Paul would, um, he needed a producer really. And I was, I was just, I was just starting engineering. I was really a tape off. I didn't really know how to direct them because I wasn't a producer, but he did need a producer on those sessions. I'm very curious of, of recollections of your time working with Sid Barrett. <laughs> uh, again, I don't remember much about it. <laughs> I was originally, I was a tape op on Barrett on the second album which was Roger and I don't know if Dave, yeah, it was Roger and Dave Gilmore um, producing, but it was mainly Roger. Uh, I can't remember all the lineup now. Um, again, it was really early 1970 or 71 um, in July. Um, yeah, difficult to get tracks down with Sid all the way through. I mean, he tried um playing with other musicians and then recording himself uh and putting the drums on after which of course never works and then um uh let me see and then i um with peter jenner who was the producer who was a producer now peter jenner was black hill enterprises and he put on all the gigs in the park concert and he managed all these bands. I don't know how he did it all and produced them all. So he managed and produced records with Roy Harper, Edgar Broughton band, Kevin Ayers. Um, who else? There's a band called Formerly, Formerly Fat Harry, who he did a third year band. He didn't produce third year band, but he managed them. And all, the, all these Harvest acts, he had a, like a block deal with Harvest Records for the the underground from 1968 onwards, really. Um, he was the, the head of the UK underground, really. Um, but yes, Pete, of course, had known Sid for, because Pete, the, the, they started off managing the Floyd, Pete Jenner and Andrew King and Blackhill managed Pink Floyd. And that's how they knew Sid. And I think when the Floyd dropped Sid, Blackhill dropped the Floyd, but kept tried to keep Sid busy and promote Sid, but of course Sid wasn't really capable. Um, and then there was a period, I think it was 1974, and Pete Jenner phoned me up and said, we're going in the studio with Sid, just him on his own. And he wants to make a record in a week. And the first day he's gonna play guitar and play the songs, all the 10 songs. And then the next day he's going to play all the bass and the third day he's going to play all the keyboards and then on the fourth day he's going to do all the vocals oh yeah for the whole album yes yes this is what we're going to do and sid turned up um with all new guitars i mean all the guitars were still in their boxes with labels on you know um and he he had a drum kit and everything you needed to be a band you know drum kit bass amps and stuff 
and um again it was very difficult to get songs down really and all he all he really had was blues kind of slow blues boogie johnny hooker type shuffles and mm. these kind of things and the tapes on the inter i don't know how these tapes get out but you know there's there's um if you go on youtube you can see sid barrett's last session and it's just uh you know, it's like a DI'd guitar because he didn't want to hear himself either. He wanted to play electric, but he didn't want to hear himself. And if he mic'd him up or however you did it, uh, he would turn it off like the amp. He didn't want to hear it in the room. So, okay, so we just DI the guitar, DI the guitar and um, put it in his headphones and that kind of thing. And it was like, can you turn it off the headphones you know he doesn't know or, or Sid why don't you just take the headphones off if you don't... <laughs> anyway he said like can you turn it off the headphones so um different things like that and then he'd get bored and just walk out really and we'd see in studio three the old studio three you could see the crossing the uh, the famous abbey road crossing and from the window where you sat you could see the crossing and the people and Sid would go, uh, oh, can I take a break? And you go, sure, Sid, yeah, yeah, come back. And you'd look out and you'll see Sid walking over the crossing and going up to the station. <laughs> so that was that was the end of that, you know, and that went on for a week. And you didn't know if he was going to show up the next day. He did. He showed up every day. He showed up every day. Yeah, by himself. But there's all sorts of stories. If you read your Sid Barrett uh, biographies, you know, all those things. And Brian Morrison was paying for the hotel room for, for years, apparently had been paying for different hotel rooms and renting apartments. Brian Morrison was a publisher and um, was generally looking after Sid. And he was always trying to give Sid money. And Sid thought that he was asking for money. It's like, no, Sid, this is your money. Here's a hundred pounds, Sid. Go and buy some food, Sid. This is your money. No, I don't want your money. No, it's your money. I'm giving it to you. These kind of things. And apparently he bit off um, Brian Morrison's finger. They had a fight and ah, and he and Sid bit his finger off or something. This is the story. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I can't really comment about Sid. I know I've got I've got my name there and I did it. And, these kind of things but in terms of like communication it was uh, there wasn't really any now had you in all the shows you went to as a youngster had you seen the floyd with sid uh i had yeah uh, international F uh, london free school which was uh 1966 at uh paris paris terrace there was uh, again which was set up by um john hopkins and peter jenner they had a thing called the London Free School, which during the day was in was that was a school for children. And in the evenings, it was a kind of art centre where they would show underground films. This is all in near Portobello Road, Notting Hill Gate area of London. And the Floyd would play and word was out. This is right when Cream were formed, I remember, um, because we had this choice of going to see Cream, who we'd already seen and didn't think was that good. We'd seen Cream at Cook's Cleek and, and everyone said, oh, should we go to Cook's Ferry Inn and see the Cream again? Or um, go and see this weird group, the Floyd, with the light show. Uh, and it was cheaper to get in at the London Free School. It wasn't free. And uh, that was when they had the light show, a San Francisco light show thing going on. And it was, I don't know if you know, International Times was a, 
uh, weekly, it became weekly, uh, kind of underground magazine, a bit like Village Voice kind of happening, okay. but it was much more political and much more, not anarchist, but it had all sorts of things. It was the underground newspaper. Um, and they, they were the London Free School as well. Um, and then they became UFO with uh, Joe Boyd, oh, yeah. you know, Joe Boyd and running the UFO club in Middle Earth and the whole sort of hippie thing from 66, 67, really. Um, but yeah, it was all kind of based around Portobello and um, for us anyway, Portobello Road, the market there. Um, yeah, that's where I saw the Floyd and I'd seen the Floyd uh, at various colleges, let me think. Well, mainly at festivals, really. Hampstead Heath Festival oh. and um, uh, 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 Atom Heart Mother in Hyde Park um, was really good. Um, I can tell you, Atom Heart Mother, again, I just started Friday, uh, February. No, this must have been the summer of 1970 because it was a concert, Atom Heart Mother, this is before metal. Yeah, that, that's right. They mixed. When I started, they were mixing Atom Heart Mother with Alan Parsons. Wow, yeah. Peter Baum had recorded it and Alan had just come, come up. He'd, he'd been there a few years before me, two years before me. So Alan at that time was just becoming an engineer and was mixing Atom Heart Mother. So this is summer of 1970. And the Floyd were performing Atom Heart Mother with the brass band, with the brass and the choir in Hyde Park and word came out Friday afternoon that they wanted um, 24 music stands and chairs uh, for the orchestra on stage by 11 o'clock in Hyde Park and could someone do it and I said yeah, I'll do it I'll do it <laughs> so me and this van driver we had to hire a van and drive to Hyde Park and we had the whole day backstage while they did Atom Heart Mother because of course they were last on and then collect the 20 count the 24 music stands and the chairs and that was my gig <laughs> but that that was uh you know and of course with the floyd i'd seen them around the studio as well and doing different things and because of the black hill and peter jenner connection roy harper as well so i was always on roy harper sessions edgar broughton those you know and kevin ayer sessions because that was my street level thing you know from the underground and, and portobello and stuff you know so what was it like seeing the floyd with sid at their peak uh i can't remember much about it 1966 54 years ago um i can't remember an awful lot other than all i can remember is the light show is fantastic <laughs> absolutely fantastic the floyd so sid, uh, sid was into it he was performing at that time you saw him i think yeah yeah this is 66 right after arnold lane or even see emily play mm -hmm. um yeah it was the singles they hadn't done album they hadn't done piper at the gates of dawn um and uh it, it was loud it was loud you know you got to remember in those days in those days the volume you know going to a gig and it's loud it was it was bloody great you know because yep. you just you know and very often you'll get down the front for the purpose of exposing yourself to that loudness you know but what what were they like i all i can remember from the floyd really was the the organ the farfisa or the vox continent whatever he had the vox organ with the with the tremor you know 
and that kind of uh, i can remember the organs uh, every song being the same because of the organ but maybe that's just the pa balance <laughs> yeah where you were the other thing that was very funny was because it was called the london free school and it was actually a children's school where this gig was there was a stage um all around it was like a nursery so there was all these uh, kids drawings and everything and there was all these little chairs little nursery chairs that the kids would sit on so of course when we went in people often sat on the floor everyone was sitting on these little children's <laughs> chairs <laughs> and that was the other thing i always remember about the gig and i i you know i got friends i still know friends who i went with and they go hey do you remember those chairs yeah yeah it was weird <laughs> Well, you didn't remember much about the music, but I like that chair reference. Yeah, there you go. Now, but didn't you work as an um, engineer on Pink Floyd, Wish You Were Here? Um, kind of. I, I, I probably shouldn't say that I did, but I did. Um, I started off the session for Wish You Were Here because it was a new studio in abbey road so the studio three in abbey road they just installed a neve mixer one of the big neve mixers in fact it was the biggest neve in the world at the time kind of wrapped around neve because before that it was all emi mixers it was what's called tg mixers and so this was the new studio the whole room was uh renovated with new speakers and everything even had plants and people things growing and lights on dimmers and things which they'd never had before um and this was a new studio and i was appointed the because i'd worked with roy harper and david gilmore i had nothing to do with um uh dark side of the moon but they're always in and out in the studio and you'll see them in the canteen and in the corridor um and david gilmore i did some tracks I did some mixing really with uh, Sutherland Brothers and Quiver. Dave Gilmore would often come in with various things. And uh, he said, would you, you know, do you want to do the, would you like to do the next album? But we haven't got any songs. And I said, yeah, okay. So, but we've got this new mixer and they wanted to be first in using this new mixer. And of course, no one had worked it before. It was literally, they didn't put the power on until the night before. No one really knew what all the buttons did or anything. But it was all seemed to work and the Floyd set up and they were in there for the next, I don't know, months on end. So no one could really get in there and do maintenance or find out exactly how the mixer worked, whether it was working correctly. And it was. But anyway, so I set up the whole studio with the band for them playing and recorded early takes of Shine On Your Crazy Diamond, really, with the whole band playing. Um, and then Brian Humphreys turned up and unknown to me because the Floyd wouldn't don't announce anything like that. They were having Britannia Row built. Britannia Row was their studio. And Brian Humphreys was in charge of building this Britannia Row studio and also doing their live sound. And um, he turned up and said, oh, hello, you know, like one morning and said, oh, hello, I'm the Pink Floyd's engineer, you know, and I literally said, no, you're not. I am. <laughs> And he said, well, the Floyd of Arsman, it wasn't until they came in, did they explain, oh, yes, we never told you, John, yeah, Brian's taking over. And it was this kind of, oh, yeah, okay. And of course, there was a dilemma with Abbey Road, because um, they didn't, at that time, they didn't allow outside engineers to work right. there. 
the only people that could work there were Jeff Emmerich or Ken Scott, really, like old people that had been there before. And of course, Brian Humphreys had never worked there. So they didn't really, you know, there was a bit of a hoo-ha and I had to stay on. Will you be the engine? You know, you, you have to look after him. It's a new studio. We don't know, you know, can't have a stranger working. The, the studio is not tested. So I carried on for a bit, for a day or two or something, and just went off and did a Roy Harper record because Roy was down the corridor and wanted to start his record. So there's no shortage of work, you know, it's like four more. If I'm not going to do the Floyd, I'll do this, you know. So Roy and, being down the corridor, he came in to sing Have a Cigar, I'm wish you were. Correct, yeah. They were in Studio 3 and we were in Studio 2, off, often, often the way, yeah. And so, the, you know, you'd often nip in and out of different studios. The Floyd always had a bar. They always had a fridge with beer in, with beer and Coca-Cola, which is a rarity at Abbey Road. <laughs> they never had a bar or anything at Abbey Road. You know, you had to bring your own in. And of course, the, the Floyd bought their own, through experience, bought their own fridge and stuff. It was different in those days, in the, working in the factory. It was a, it was a factory, really. And you went on to do a lot of work with Roy Harper. Yeah, I think uh, I think I did six, seven albums with Roy, really. Um, he started with Life Mask. Well, I tape hopped on uh, Stormcock, which is his best record, really, Stormcock. And uh, then Life Mask, I, I engineered, mixed everything with Peter Jenner producing. And if Peter Jenner wasn't there, then just just carry on you know with roy and um different people will come in you know jimmy page and keith moon and you know synthesizers you know we used to when the vcs3 and various synths the moog vcs3 um what was that other one the oberheim uh, no the arp 2600 um roy wanted to use all those things so we would hire them and i'd have to find out how they worked and now you get a tune out of them and those kind of things and then i'm like i don't know the vcs3 kind of thing um i knew a bit i knew about oscillators and synths so you know it was a continually expanding sort of idea and we got a guy called uh was it roger hodgson or brian hodgson i think it was brian hodgson who worked with the radiophonic workshop and was also part of that david warhouse white noise record i don't mm -hmm. know that uh what's it called dark storm in hell or something um no it's called white it's called white noise white storm, it? yeah yeah so yeah the guy from that he came down and showed us how the vcs3 got a sound and everything but they're always a nightmare in those days since because they went out of tune and you couldn't you know you used to get your sound and then by the time you had to get it on tape and press record it had all moved you know the sound had changed and if you didn't like a bit and you come back and want to drop it in with the same sound you, you can't get it the same so all those things you learn all those things and you know the mini moog it wasn't until mini moogs really that it all got very stable and proper yeah and even then only more a little bit more so <laughs> yeah yeah but um, you know, and the Floyd had the two V on uh, Dark Side of the Moon on on the run, you know, with the sequence. You know, they had they had two VCS three, um, what they call synthy ones, the, the the suitcase ones with the blue keyboard. I used to sit for hours, and you could just play your sequence, press record, play your sequence, press play, and it would just repeat and speed it up, slow it down, and shift the octave and. 
it was hours of fun. <laughs> um, and the, you know, and we we used we thought they were toys. It was funny. We thought they were toys. And then someone, I remember Pete James came and said, hey, "You know that VCS three in the suitcase? The Floyd are using it on their record. Can you believe it? They're actually using this toy on their record." <laughs> That's very funny. Um, I would love to talk to you about Bebop Deluxe. Uh-huh. Bebop Deluxe came into my consciousness in America, and I think it was sort of their breakthrough in America with modern music, 1976. I would have been 12 or 13. Um, but you started working them right from the get-go when they were more of kind of like a, a glam or even punk kind of unit. Is that true? Uh, yeah, it was before punk, really. I mean, it was all before punk. Proto, Proto-punk. Proto-punk, yeah, it wasn't even the attempt. It's more Roxy music when you say glam. It was more an attempt of being, a, well, it wasn't an attempt. It's just the way Bill Nelson was. But yeah, I, I first met Bill. He came in with Axe Victim, which was the first album to mix. And the, again, the producer never turned up. It was an EMI house producer. Ian McClintock was the producer who'd done all the recording. I think a lot of it was recorded at Air Studios. And he booked a weekend, a Saturday and a Sunday to mix. And I said, oh, you know, and I hadn't really heard, I never had a record out, Bebop Deluxe. Oh, that name, that sounds good. I'll do that weekend. You know, you put your name down in the diary to do it. And um, he just came in with the tapes and said, oh, was, and Ian McClintock phoned up and said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy this weekend. I didn't know the sessions were on. He's a fucking producer, you know, and he's mixing the album. And he didn't know the sessions were on. <laughs> anyway, we mixed the album Axe Victim and um, that was it. And then I never saw Bill again. And then I just got a call or I'd, I'd, I'd sort of asked about him from EMI and different people at EMI. Um, and then I got a call a couple of a year or so later asking if I would co-produce their next album with Bill and the two of us do it together. And of course I said, yes, you know, um, and that was um, Sunburst Finish. And so, yeah, that, and in between, of course, he'd done Futurama with Roy Thomas Baker at, uh, at Rockfield. Now, you didn't work on Futurama? No, not at all. That was all done with Roy Thomas Baker at Rockfield and, uh, and that other studio in, I can't remember what it's called now. Um, yeah, so it was Axe Victim, really. And basically me and Bill just met up and we had a chat and was there demos? I can't remember if there were demos, really. Um, I'd certainly never rehearsed with them. But the band came in and were really, really together and really hot and it was just like ready to go. And we recorded between Studio Two and Studio Three at Abbey Road. That's a few days in two and a few days in three. And uh, let me see with with um, Sunburst finished. Yeah, and it, 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 we just really hit it off and had great time. And um, I think we did some something at Air as well, Air Studios mixing i think andrew powell did the strings or um something andrew powell did worked a lot with kate bush this is all in that period um <clears throat> yeah we just hit, hit it off and then every year or every <laughs> seemed like every every six months really bill would be on the phone saying oh i'm doing another record you know i'll send you the, the demos or something so then it was m modern music 
and then uh, the live album, I think, live in the air age. So I then went out with this. That's when I discovered the Rolling Stones mobile because um, we went out with the Rolling Stones mobile and recorded, I think, six or seven gigs, big gigs, Hammersmith Odeon um, of Bebop Deluxe around the country and pick the best and uh, mix, try to overdub, couldn't really. So everything on Be What Deluxe Live in the Air Ages, as it happened, there's no overdubs. Oh, well, I wanted to ask you about that because um, as a producer, I do a lot of live recording production. And that's something that I really enjoy only because I feel like there's a different energy with live performances, oh, yeah. right? Mm. So what kind of stuff were you running into with mobile at that point because it's sort of new to record that way live, is it? Um, well, yeah, mid 70s. I mean, this would have been 1975, 75, 76, I suppose. And the Stones truck was built for exile on Main Street, 1972 or three. It was, a, you know, it was a Helios desk mm. in a, on an army base. You know, it was I don't know what the width of it would be. The width of the mix is like 10 foot, I suppose. Enough for the desk and a little alleyway to move. Um, and two 3M24 track machines. So that you went as, as one machine was running out, you would start the second machine. They both two machines with the same input. So, you know, when you get to near the end of the tape, you just start the other reel and so on and uh revoxes and it was the stones it was all neumann mics and shore and proper speakers and it was great because you could shut the door turn the speakers full on deafening and outside you wouldn't hear anything you know just hear like a rumble or something it was very um soundproof the whole thing uh, and it was the only mobile that has a window and it's got a window a big double glazed window with venetian blind because all the other mobiles at the time, because I spent a lot of time with the Stones mobile, and it was the only one with a window that you could look out. <laughs> if you're stuck inside a mobile, <laughs> Memphis Blues again. If you're if you're um, if you're in a mobile for three weeks, you know you want a window to look at out <laughs> twelve hours. You know, especially if you can't open the door. You know. Um, so yeah, we I, I did, and then we went to. Um, we did Drastic Plastic, which was in the south of France. So we'd done all these records and the band were like, um, can't, we re can't we record somewhere different to Abbey Road? Can't we go somewhere really nice like the south of France? And mm -hmm. like the Stones did. And we go, oh yeah, okay, I'll make some phone calls. So I, I phoned up the Stones office and said, do you got any castles, any houses to do a record with your mobile, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, I can. So I flew down there, checked out a few houses as you do with the stone secretary, and oh, we'll have this one, St. Chateau Saint Georges in Juan Le Pan near Cannes, between Cannes and Nice, near Antibes, um, two minutes from the Mediterranean. You know, it was fantastic. We went there for the whole of May, and it was the Cannes Film Festival, so we could walk down the La Croissette and part with all the film stars. It was fantastic. We were there for nearly two months, seven weeks we were there. And there was every night, 14 of us would sit down to dinner and the wives and girlfriends were were uh, cooking and stuff. And um, we used to get the, the roadie or the tour manager used to go to the bank in Antibes 
on a Monday morning and, and collect a thousand pounds from EMI. That was our money for the week to pay for all our food and stuff and whatever was needed. So they would go to the supermarket and spend 200 pound on food and 200 pound on booze. And we'd still have 600 pounds to spend. So we'd buy, you know, marijuana weed or something from some, some contact we'd have. And then we'd go to the restaurants, you know, the best restaurant and spend 400 pounds on eating out, you know, and then next week do it again. <laughs> But yes, we did a good, we, it was good time that. Um, so, so uh, presumably then modern music did well for them? It did, I think, yeah. And well, they never, yes, it did well. EMI came up with the advance. I think they're very good, very strong management. And EMI came up with the advance and the band. Uh, yeah, I mean, there were no hit records. There were Ships in the Night, which was kind of, I don't know what the highest uh, number 12, number 15 was their single from uh, Sunburst Finish, Ships in the Night. Um, but there was no other real hit single, really. So yeah, Made, made in Heaven well. or one of those? Maybe, yeah, that was earlier on. Yeah, they always showed promise, you know. But I think Bill got, what can I say? Bill probably got a bit introverted and he didn't want to be commercial um you know he purposely wanted to not confuse his audience but challenge his audience i suppose with either lyrics or you know playing i mean it was all great stuff but it wasn't radio play you know he shunned radio play i don't want to be played on the radio you know <laughs> um which is all a different thing you know and then he toured america it was all about touring and overwork really as well you know you know, you, you're on a six week tour of America and you've got a week to write an albums of songs and then you're in the studio for six weeks recording those songs, you know. I um, remember modern music breaking through in New York. The uh -huh. song, the song was on heavy rotation. <clears throat> oh, good. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I always thought they were cool, but I, I'm also really interested in Bill Nelson as a musician because he goes on to do Red Noise and you're involved with a lot of his post bebop deluxe productions so i'd love to hear you talk a little bit about those well as i say we we were you know we were we became quite close friends really and our family you know i had a baby he had babies and we sort of you know wives and we used to go and stay with each other um and you know when the when the when it became red noise bill again just had these songs we didn't we didn't converse or anything he suddenly said oh here's a new record and emi went with it really I'm, i wasn't really a part of the breakup of the band and everything um yeah and no, i i we did we he did that and then he did his solo record quit dreaming and get on the beam which was his lot after the red noise thing which didn't really take off and then he, he did solo record quit dream which is really great actually quit dreaming and get on the beam and we did that in a in a little hall a village hall like a a small hall near up in yorkshire near where bill lived again with the stones mobile so it was just me and him and the stones mobile with everything um and just bill playing really with he, he he more or less played everything i mean conventional you know there's no click or drum machine or there was some tracks with drum machine but 
it was really Bill playing drums and bass and everything. And it sounded like a proper band, you know. Um, and then EMI dropped him and they never released it. And I think um, it never got released that quit dreaming and get on the beam. Uh, it came out on uh, phonogram or something on Polydor, which is now universal. So um, it's not an EMI record and it charted, you know, and it actually, it was a quite a big selling record and they had a few, it's great. That sounds great. Now those, the quit dreaming and get on the beam was really good tracks on there. Living in my limousine is one. Uh, and do you dream in color as well, of course, yeah, which was a great record, which, you know, which he did his, because uh, Bill was very kind of self-sufficient. Bill did his own uh, video for do you dream in color. And he always had eight mil, eight millimeter camera. He did loads of stuff like that. We both had these eight millimeter cameras and um, he, he videoed himself doing the verses in black and white. And then he rented a, video studio and did the choruses in color video and then edited it well then went in and edited it because he never had any home editing he could even mm -hmm. have like final cut pro or anything in those days so he'd have to rent a video editing suite and cut it all together you know so yeah do dream in color it still comes up every now and again on you know it's a big mtv thing and mm. he's an interesting guy what do you keep in touch with him do you know what he's up to um, yeah, we, yeah, we speak, uh, once a year, we always do Christmas cards. No, no, we speak, uh, we, we don't speak often, not often enough. Um, Cherry Red Records re-released the, the record, all of the Bebop Deluxe records as box set and got someone to do new mixes and 5.1 mixes and things. Um, but it's great with the old photos and everything. Uh, you've probably got it there. Yeah, I have it here. <laughs> the box this oh is, yeah um you know one of the things that i've heard about through my xdc interest is that andy partridge sought you out specifically because he liked the way the bebop deluxe record sounded uh-huh am i correct I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think so. They, they, he obviously, he, he, you know, he had a lot of respect for Bebop Deluxe and Bill Nelson. They've never met, I don't think. I don't think they've ever met. I've never managed to get the two of them together, you know. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But, but do you have any idea what he was looking for when you started working on white music with them or the EPs? uh you know was there something about like oh i like that drum sound or i like that bass sound no no there's no no reference to bebop deluxe i don't think there ever is well unless people are real fans but um no there was never any reference or mention of bebop deluxe with uh with, with xtc it wasn't like that at all so how did you first meet up with andy and xtc um through Virgin Records, really. I mean, just a call from Simon Draper at Virgin. Um, just the, you know, the A&R guy at Virgin phoned me up and said, there's this band sent me a cassette and they were playing at the, the, what's it called? The Nashville Rooms in Hammersmith in London and went down there and it was real punk rock. I've been to a few punk gigs before, but at that time it was pretty, you know, we're talking mid 76 really. 
um, before the Sex Pistols record came out, maybe. I'm not quite certain. But yeah, it was very uh, punky, gobby, pogo in, fights, beer thrown at the, around everywhere at the stage. Um, <laughs> and that's how it was. It was terrifying. And of course, XTC, XTC come on a real, real, you know, uh, rough, you know, they're real like, you know, angry and that, and he's sweating and, you know, um, and Barry Andrews has got his beaten up organ, his Krumar organ with dog breath written on the back of it, you know, and, you know, pushing it to the edge of the stage. They were great, you know, particularly Barry when he played this organ and it was on a swivel. He had no top on it. And so very often when he did his solo or came, he'd push it to the edge of the stage and the organ would be up and he'd play it like this. And you could see all the inside of it, you know, and it was all like dirty with beer cans and stuff inside this electric organ, you know, that he was playing. It was quite sensational. And he had this little, it was called a Lawrence piano and it was a mini upright oh, yeah. um, strung piano. Um, it wasn't a toy, you know, it was like this mini upright. It's called a Lawrence, I always remember. And he had, and it had a pickup on it. And he used to plug a, a treble booster, a guitar treble booster, into the where the pickup was. And when he hit the the chord on the piano, it was really sharp. And then when Andy hit his guitar, you know, he had to compete. So ding, 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 ding. You know, there'd be guitar, piano, guitar, and they would both have to be really kind of sharp and brittle and shiny, you know. And they were great. It was really they really had their internal sound together, you know. And you also, that's probably the first time you heard Terry Chambers and Colin Moulding as well. Yeah. 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 Same thing. You know, really strong and driving and, you know. How did they get on with the audience at that point? The audience, well, early XTC, uh, well, they're all just, the audience are just, they were, they were used to it all really. I mean, it was just, you know free-for-all really things being thrown and all that kind of thing yeah but you know all the songs were well with xdc you know all the songs were really great they weren't straight ahead kind of punk songs you know no they weren't yeah um yeah so what was the question <laughs> so so then how do you XTC end up, up deluxe well how do, how do you end up uh in the studio recording white music or um, what leads up to that? Because I, I, there were singles before the album. Yeah, I did uh, the 3D EP, um, which was uh, Science Friction, um, and I'm Bugged, and I can't remember what else was on it. And it was an EP, and that was done at Abbey Road 3. And for some reason, it didn't come out sounding very good. I've sort of heard a remastered thing, but I was always hated the sound of it. And then they want, then we did White Music at the Manor, at the Manor Studios, which was a Virgin studio. And of course, I wasn't allowed. I was still employed by Abbey Road and I wasn't allowed to work at other studios and they wouldn't rent. They wouldn't hire me out, you know, so I literally in secret took my two weeks holiday and went to the Manor and recorded uh, white music, the whole record and mixed it all in two weeks. And unknown to Abbey Road, they thought I'd gone on holiday. Oh, you have a nice holiday. Yeah, great. And I've been two weeks in the studio, you know. Um, and uh, and then I played it to Simon Draper, 
who loved it and said, well, when are you going to mix it? I'm going, well, we have mixed it. That's it. The band were there. We spent the last few days mixing all the tracks, you know. No, 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 you can't. That's too quick. You've got to go in and mix it again. Go in and mix it next week. <laughs> so again, I had to take more time off Abbey Road out of my holiday time and go into uh, AdVision and I mixed it by myself. So what you hear is actually my mix. We know no band, no one there. Although all I was trying to do was copy what we already had at the manor. But yeah, the, the mix is so white music. And a lot of it was um, B-sides and unreleased stuff. You know, there's there's different things like there's a version of Fireball XL5 and um, there's um, what's it, Instant Tunes. There's just various songs that popped up as B-sides and different compilations. And it's like that came from the white music sessions, you know. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, they were probably immediately prolific. Andy was cranking out tunes. That's right. So were you going into go to were you working off of demos? Uh, there were demos for go to. Yeah, I think I still got a cassette of go to demos. Yeah, we never rehearsed. <laughs> they They rehearsed without me or something. Um, it was never suggested that I went to rehearsal. The demos were there. Um, not quite certain, but I'd... So what happened with Go2 was that they... I'm just trying to think now. Um, I, I need to just get... Yeah, they wanted, they wanted me to record at the Townhouse, which was the new studio, the new Virgin studio in London. And again, I couldn't go. And that was me on the point of leaving Abbey Road. And when we went to the townhouse on the first day, the studio wasn't ready. It wasn't, you know, we, we actually, the band and everyone turned up. But because it was like Easter holidays, no one told the band, this is typical band communication in those days, you know, no one told the band that the studio wasn't open, basically. It was open, but there was no mixer or no power on and the guys was coming to fix it on Tuesday and this was like Saturday you know um, and so I phoned I knew that Abbey Road 3 was available so I phoned up Ken Townsend the manager and said explain the situation and he said of course you know go and take the week there so we literally on that day drove to Abbey Road and did the whole of go to in Abbey Road 3 um, and it's got a certain energy to it, you know, the whole thing. I can't remember much about Go To actually, because um, there was all sorts of stuff and tensions with Barry Andrews wanting to do his songs, and it, you know, there was there was I don't know. I think there were two ended up on the record, two, but yeah. we actually did another two or three or four. We did we did about five of Barry Andrews' songs, and. Um, you know, uh, some of them were used, some of them, we mixed them all, but um, and then Barry never came. I think he left before the record came out. I'm not quite certain of the history there. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of tension between Andy and Barry through the record. And also there was a lot of um, touring commitments. You know, there was a certain tension. It wasn't as relaxed or as fun as, as what white music was. Um, 
I don't know, maybe it was the tracks or maybe what was going on. But of course, and after that, when they then went with Steve Lillywhite, they did the best record, Drums and Wires, you know, which is... Sure, uh, you know, and, and it's a new beginning, but there's something about those first two records that puts them in an interesting place in what's going on in 1978. Because yeah. mm -hmm. that's all 1978. Yeah. And that's that's an interesting period. So, um. I, and I think go to there, there, it's sort of the pre it's the preview to what they're going to get to on drums and wires, yeah. particularly songs like beat town, uh -huh. which is a favorite of mine from, from go to right, right. and uh, super tough. Oh yeah. That's an, uh, that's a um, Barry Andrews song. Super yeah. Tough. But super tough, you know, to me that, that fit in quite well. Mm -hmm. um so yeah when 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 the, you get to the the next period if it if it could be called that um i think that there were things that were, re were retained from the early dynamic of the band between instead of guitar and keyboard now it's it's the two guitars and so they're going to be performing beat town with two guitars and you know uh -huh. it's, going, it's so there's a, it's an interesting little crossroads yeah. yeah yeah so after shortly after that you were working with andy on a record called take away lure of salvage mm. i'm fascinated by that record <laughs> some people are yeah yeah um, so when we did go to um we did i think we we must have mixed go to at the manor because i can remember doing these dub sessions at the manor maybe i'm wrong um but uh yeah when we did go to the that went with the record we we was go plus which was i think four um dub versions of the songs that were on the record but of course <laughs> what can i say we're not we're not rastafari you know we didn't really understand dub really i mean we did what we thought but we kind of we kind of took uh took each song and tried to make it unrecognizable really just to dig into it explore a whole new picture that didn't have any relevance to the original song really um and that's how we we did the go plus sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't um but what happened, of course, is the record was originally the EP Go Plus was given away with Go Two, and then later it was sold commercially. It was sold as a separate EP, and even and a lot of clubs were playing it because it was just kind of crazy beats and things. Um, a lot of clubs were playing this Go Two record, and so it got quite a lot of favour from from that. And again, I don't know. Andy phoned me up one day and said. Hey, you know we did that Go Plus record, that dub. Do you want? Do you fancy entering the world of dub for a couple of weeks at the studio? So I said, yeah, yeah. So basically, I had all the tapes from all their records, which was my two records and Drums and Wires. Mm -hmm. And every day we would pick a track and basically destroy it and put it back together again, which was. Uh, you know, whichever took our whim and fancy, whether it was, I don't think we played anything backwards, but we'd play things at different speeds and do things like 
make the bass drum into the snare drum. No sampling or a computer, it's all on tape. So just by EQ and general, maybe putting it through a guitar pedal, um, EQ make the bass drum sound like the snare drum and then the snare drum like the ball, the bass drum or something, depending on the song. Very often, the other favorite one is take, just have the tom-toms, particularly with XTC. You can take the snare bass drum and the hi-hat and everything out and just have and then gate the toms and you and then put delay on them and so every you know you get this whole new pattern going on with a with spasmodics kind of tumbling tom tom fills going on and nothing else silence you know and then maybe you make the bass sound like a piccolo bass bing 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 or something you know all those kind of crazy things and it's great working with Andy doing that of course and you know He'd come out with, he'd go out and read some poetry or, or write a new, whole new song. You know, there's that song, what's it? Uh, new Broom. I want a new broom to sweep it all clean, that one, which is uh, making plans for Nigel slowed right down, like half speed making plans for Nigel. I don't know, we just did it as <laughs> whatever our whim for that day, you know. But, but it's fascinating to me for, for several reasons. One is that it does indicate what Andy's spoken a lot about, not just to me, but a lot about trying to copy something, dub, in this case, and getting it wrong. <laughs> right? So there's that. That's which, that. <laughs> which, which is the case of anybody that tries to, you know, necessarily, um, you know, take, take something from, from another genre and do it when it's not, mm. your, you know, you weren't Rastafarians. And the other thing is, he's so smart to understand that he's got a plethora of great beats to work with. Yeah. Right? So in terms of beats, he has, he has the human drum machine, Terry Chambers, mm. take any parts of those, yeah, yeah. process them, they're going to retain the groove quality or the cool rhythmic quality of them, right? And yeah. then you can process the shit out of it, have cut it up, do whatever you want. So in a way, it's a very interesting kind of um, looking through your own, you know, uh, makeup, looking mm. through your own, you know, uh, material to then reimagine it in a very interesting way. Um, and so electronically, it's sort of early electronic stuff in a way, electronica. It's also sort of early sampling, really, if you're looking at you're manipulating tape, but you're essentially doing samples. Yeah. 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 It's all done on tape. There's no, um, there's no sampling as such. And but were uh, the loops created, like how did, how was the tape manipulated? Was well, a very few loops. It was just the way it was on the on the original recording. You know, you start at the beginning and play the tape through, and everything else was muted from the original song. There wasn't really any looping as such. Um, you know, it was what came up in the arrangement from the original song on a lot of the the tunes. Um, it's funny because I met, I met, uh, should I tell you this? Maybe I met, um, I met this guy. No, I don't think I'll tell you. No, no, no. Cause I can't remember his, his, what his name 
<laughs> I, I shouldn't really. In in England here, there's the Barbican uh, yes. Theatre, which is a big concert hall called the Barbican, and they put on different events like. Uh, PJ Harvey would do things. We saw suicide there with Alan Vega just before Alan Vega died. So, it, so they they put on pretty uh, hip stuff as well in a big concert hall, you know. And um, I met this guy that was putting things on, and he contacted me, and he wanted to. He loved the lure of salvage. To him, it was the greatest record ever, and he wanted to make contact with Andy Partridge to see how Andy visualized putting it on at the Barbican as a theater piece. This was the offer. Whatever the theater piece is, we want the lure of salvage translated for the theatrical stage at the Barbican. When was that? About three, four years ago. Wow. Yeah. Um, I can't remember his name. It was something Smith, was it? Not Robert Smith or John Smith. It was another Smith. And there's a label called Blast First. No, I, I'm, I'm probably, I'm think, I think he managed that. But anyway, he put these concerts on. I never heard from him again. Um, but basically, he had this budget, huge budget. What? Well, not huge, but he never said, but it was like anything you wanted. And he really wanted to sit and have dinner with Andy Partridge and discuss it because he loved the rag. And of course, Andy didn't. Oh, they want me to perform. They want me to play. And I'm going, no, Andy, they don't. You don't even have to be there. Because the first thing I said to this guy is, you realize Andy won't go on stage. Oh, he doesn't have to be there. He just has to give his blessing that we can do it. So what sort of ideas do you think Andy's going to have? So I'm like, I don't know. And he said, well, we could do things with puppets, with giant puppets. And he wanted, what he originally wanted was me and Andy to perform the dubs in the studio and see the knobs twiddling and the flicks, the switches being flicked and the tape going round and recreating a performance of the lure of salvage from the original tapes on stage, me and Andy. And I'm like, well, you can't really do that. You know, hey, we're not Rastafari's and we're not dance people. And no one, you know, you, there's nothing more boring than sitting watching someone twiddling knobs. And we're going to do that every night of the show. <laughs> and anyway, the idea came up for doing big um, puppets and even having giant tape machines, the way Neil Young had the big amps on stage, we were going to have giant tape machines going round with giant tape you know, on the stage. And the whole thing was run by puppets, but it was the lure of salvage music. Great idea. It's great. Andy said, no. <laughs> he said, no, 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 I don't really want to have anything to do with this, you know. Okay. Not really. And it's like, uh, I was kind of thinking, well, yeah, but you can actually do anything. You don't actually, they just want your blessing to, you know, obviously once he's, everyone's going to go, well, what does Andy Partridge think of this if we did it? But, and, you know, and the guy was kind, you know, the budget was not, you know, he, he was quite acceptable to, and he had contacts of puppet makers and all this kind of thing. And it just, I thought it would have been fantastic to recreate this giant puppet and there'd be me and Andy there doing dubs, but it was done by giant puppets. <laughs> but it does show that people love that record. Mm. And, and, and is it true that it did very well in Japan? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Because there's some Japanese, you know, well, isn't there one called Work Away Tokyo Day? There's some 
Japanese Twitter sort of synth stuff going on. And it's very, yeah, I met DJs, Mixmaster Morris and different um, people that DJ like Ninja Tune people. And they love that record because they can put it on and everyone goes, oh, what's this? You know. <laughs> and it's 1980. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you'd run into people that, that were in the biz that were hip to that record. Hmm. Yeah, I have. Yeah, a few. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. I can tell how it's all done. That's why it doesn't have the mystery as much as what other people, you know. But also, you run into people that constantly query you about Dukes of Stratosphere and Twenty Five O'Clock. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, I have to talk to you about Dukes of Stratosphere. Just one of my favorite, really favorite efforts by the guys and it's just so magical um i guess i i had asked dave gregory about this and there, there's a number of things i want to ask you but um yeah. is it true that when it came out on april fool's day 1985 that <laughs> It was a mystery as to who the band was. Yeah, they never announced it. Yeah, it was never. They tried to keep it a mystery. Yeah. And how long did that last? Uh, about a day, I think. Oh, you know, okay. it didn't last. You know, they do never. Think... I don't. You know, Andy would always do interviews in character, as it were. You know, I think didn't he? I don't know. <laughs> well. What are your recollections? Because that's that's like two weeks of work. It's it's a very short period by design. First EP, yeah, twenty five o'clock. Yeah. Twenty five o'clock. You were trying to replicate as much as possible what it would have been like to make a record during the psychedelic era in the sixties with the limitations of tape. We 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 didn't. Give out we, we our only limitations with tape at the time. It was twenty four track. You know we didn't purposely use sixties techniques. We used any technique that was available. Okay. Like we didn't purposely use valve microphones, tube microphones, or anything. You know we just used what was available. We wanted to make it sound like that. Um, you know so no we never limited ourselves in to to only using sixties equipment. But what was the purpose of recording at that studio? Because I I thought that studio was sort of a, a remnant from the past. No, no. Oh. It's just a normal studio that was going cheap <laughs> with accommodation. At, at uh, a church? Was, it was in a church, yeah. It's for sale, actually. I could send you. It's, it's going for a good price with the house and the church next door, that studio. It's called the, the chapel in... Um, Hampton Bishop is miles from anywhere. It's Hereford. Hereford is kind of between England and Wales, north of Bristol, uh, in the middle of farmlands. You drive, you come off the the freeway, and it's it's another hour through little country roads to you get there. So it's an awkward place, but yeah, it's available for sale at the moment. Funny enough, still with the equipment in and the studio, and because it's in a it's perfect studio because it's soundproof. And the house is separate, so it's not like having the studio downstairs or, you know, you've got great uh, noise, the, the noise isolation is perfect, you know, and the vibe, the whole, the whole thing is there, it's great. Um, 
but no we didn't purposely limit ourselves to 60s equipment as such but we kept that attitude all the time and it was you know it was about the songs and we just uh, everyone was and they had such a great time doing it I mean I'm sure you've you know you've heard that for that they were relieved every time they go in the studio that you know that there was all this tension about being commercial and then coming up with a hit single and you know they'd always had this hell uh, since the beginning, really, since from uh, Virgin, you know, for hit singles, you know, um, and suddenly the, here they were in the studio, really cheap, not spending, not spending loads of money, not spending thousands of pounds a day, and they're not in Los Angeles, and they're not, you know, uh, it's just them, and it's all for a lot of fun as well. So yeah, we they really enjoyed it and it wasn't that we were slapdash you know Andy sort of and maybe Dev said oh we just did first take you know it wasn't we do a few takes until it was good but of course they're great players and they're quite capable of doing it in first take you know the first go and solos you know and we had a lot of spontaneity with it and crazy stuff with Andy the thing I think with Andy is very good at impersonation you know he's very yes. good at impersonating different voices or different styles and you know you you want me to sound like the hollies or you want me to sound like um you know he, he's always got a little note that perfectly captures the alice cooper mode or the you know or the pink floyd or johnny winter know. yeah <laughs> but no he's great at impersonating and they're all sort of you know and Dave Gregory is as well of, of coming up with the sounds and funny enough Ian, Gre Ian Gregory Ian's uh, the drummer Ian uh, Dave's brother was the same on the drums although he just played weddings you know he wasn't a professional drummer but he was quite capable but he'd go to the snare drum we say oh we're trying to be like the stones on this one and so he'd go to the snare drum and tune his snare drum like Charlie Wattswood or you know, we want more of a garish kind of sound and it do that, or we want a Ringo tone, you know, that kind of come together sort of Ringo tone, you know, so put the tea towel and yep. so he always came up with great drum sounds, you know, himself, really. Those are all his drum sounds. That's really. Oh, yeah, it's all live. There's no sampling or anything. It's all live. No, not that. But I just mean like the way it was produced is not the whole sound which i guess shouldn't be surprising it's the it's the instrument and the person mm. playing it um but no no vintage instruments no mellotron no well everything's vintage yeah it's ludwig drum kit yeah there's mellotron yeah um, i guess the vintage instruments yeah but they're standard instruments you use in the studio anyway you know gibson fender mellotrons um rickenbacker 12 string Ludwig drum, you know, Hammond organ and those, all, all those, they're tradition, they're, they're what's still used today, really, they're the proper soul instruments, really. I mean, you know, you can't, you know, if, if your guitar isn't Fender or Gibson, then what's the point of playing guitar? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, that's, they're the instruments of the trade that you use, you know. I also heard that, that Andy was, was really encouraged to do it when he heard the Nick Nicely single, Hilly Field. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And funny enough, The Damned went off and did a record as similar at the same time. It wasn't similar in sound, but it was a spoof um, psychedelic 60s record. I've forgotten what it's called now. 
but the damned Captain Sensible did did uh, did that record. Um, they also did the damned also did uh, Alone Again or you know the Love Forever Changes track. Um, so they were always into that sixties period. Yeah, but yeah. you know it's um, obviously it's something that I'm I'm into and. <laughs> that that tone and it was great having the opportunity to exaggerate everything you know because you know and not have uh what could you say commercial restraints you know not saying oh you can't have that that bit's too loud or those kind of things and it was you know it was great fun mole from the ministry you know was written at the time written in the studio and it was obvious it was going to be um strawberry fields with everything else that goes on goes on there you know kitchen sink <laughs> yeah yeah mall from the ministry is is probably my top <laughs> track I, I do love it dearly um so were there what what's what's the processing going on so you're you're aware of all the 60s techniques andy's aware of this what kind of stuff are you doing to bring us to the 60s with these songs I'm probably not doing anything different to what I normally I'd normally do. Although it was how many years ago? Thirty-five years ago. You know, I'm not doing it much any any different in terms of what I'm using and the technique. It's twenty-four track. It's mixed down to tape. You know, I mean, you do it all different now, of course. But you know, at that time, that's what the studio was. You know, there was no computer and the studio provided didn't even have a half inch tape. It was quarter inch tape yeah. when at 15. Um, uh, and the 24 track, you know, so um, and a Trident mixer. I mean, maybe the EQ was, you know, it's what you go for. It's like how you EQ something, whether you EQ it, what we what we tend to say expensive. So it sounds expensive, which which is if you're doing, I suppose, a commercial thing or an expensive project, you know, you'd have a special, uh, I don't know, a Neve thing, or you use a lot of high frequency and low frequency and not the middle. I don't know. You just don't, I don't really analyze what I'm doing. I just go for it. Really. You just go for it. What you feel good at at the time. And, and, uh, you know, and people, the great thing with XTC and Andy is, you know, they will encourage you, you know, they will, they won't, they won't, you know they might touch touch the mixer no they wouldn't touch the mixer i mean andy wouldn't sort of let me have a go and go to the knobs he'll, in, he'll enthuse and encourage or screw his face oh no no you sport it now or something and that's it that's it more of that more of that kind of thing so it's not really um you know he wouldn't touch the equipment um he does now of course you know um it's always interesting that because you know when i became a producer I came from the engineering thing and it took me quite a lot to not touch the equipment to trust someone else doing it, you know, and obviously I'd work with an engineer, maybe someone that I'd worked with before. Uh, and you, you could probably ask them, but you know, I was notorious for reaching over and going, Oh no, no, let me do it. You know, I'll get the sound on the snare drum. You know, you go away, you know, mm. go make the tea and I'll do the bass drum kind of thing. But anyway, that, that's a big thing when you're producing is particularly, you know, you could, Steve Lilly White, I think, has said the same, you know, and, and Hugh Pageant is, you know, is this great temptation to reach over and 
you know, reach over and turn the knobs yourself and say, this is how I want it, you know. But when you're a producer, it's, you have to sit at the back and relate to the musicians rather than what's going on on the desk or the whole thing, really. And suddenly when you get it as a producer and you think, hey, fuck, I don't actually have to do anything. I can just sit here and enjoy, you know. <laughs> Well, the 25 o'clock did very well, so much so that, that they wanted more, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Geffen and everyone said, this is fantastic. And, you know, um, I can't remember. I was doing lots of other records at the time. And then suddenly Andy says, oh, we got to, they want some more of that. So we're going to go, we got another studio to go to and try somewhere else. So I went to the sawmills, which is down in Cornwall, which you can only get to on a boat. So Cornwall is in west uh, of England, about 200 miles, 250 miles from from London west. Um, and it's up a, a river, a tidal estuary. So um, when the tide goes out, you can't get the boat in um, and there's no road, you know. Um, so you have to literally put all the equipment on the boat, sail in at high tide, you know, and if it's not high tide, course the boat is lower and you have to lift or the hammond organ you have to lift up you know whereas if you get it at high tide you can just wheel it off you know flight cases that's why they're, they're so fussy whenever you work there it's always like four o'clock don't be late you know four o'clock because if, if you're here at 10 past four the tide will go down and you'll have to lift the flight cases but if you're here dead at four o'clock you just wheel them off you know so who, re who recorded there? You've done other projects there? I did, uh, yeah, loads of projects. I did um, Ride, the group Ride. I did an album with them, Carnival of Light. I did Cast, uh, John Power um, from the Lars. I did two albums there. I did, um, well, I did The Verve, the first album, uh, uh, Storm in Heaven. That was all done at the sawmills and mixed at the sawmills. Oh. And I did uh, Stone Roses, Fool's Gold, the uh, Fool's Gold and the B-side that went with that, um, which was a big record for the Stone Roses that um, uh, was all done at the sawmills. Well, uh, they, came to, you, they came to you specifically because they liked the, the Duke's project. Apparently, yeah, I don't I think they deny it now, but um, <laughs> apparently, yeah. But I tell you an interesting thing that it was only years later someone pointed out and now you may i don't know if you know the stone roses album made of stone mm -hmm. there's a track there it's on side two called made of stone and it's 25 o'clock you know the, the melody on the verse and the way it opens is the same as 25 o'clock <laughs> yeah, I, I always thought it was interesting too how 25 o'clock is related to uh electric prunes i had too much to dream last night yeah that's the intention that's where it came from yeah so <laughs> right and and um any other recollections from the second one sonic sunspot sonic sunspot um just trying to think what's on it only let me think now. Vanishing Girl, Have You Seen Jackie, oh, Little yeah, Lighthouse, yeah. Albert Vanishing Girl. Vanishing Girl is the Hollies, isn't it, with the 12-string. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's Colin's song, yeah. Um, yeah, that's really great. And um, 
uh, you're my drug with uh, which is um, so you want to be a rock and roll star, but you're my drug every after the mix, every time it said you're my drug, I would phase it. So I would copy it. And then we went you're my drug hand phase it and edit it in. And as soon as it finished edit out. And then every time he goes you're my drug, there's an edit of phased mix, the whole mix just phased, you're my drug, every time he says drug, phase, and edit in and edit out, and there's, you know, there's like 24 edits there on the whole song, um, always a lot of fun, you know, always a challenge, but the end result is like, hey, you know, that, that's absolutely, you know, it's always worth it at the, at the end when you know, the, the pressure of doing all that. Um, other things, Pale and Precious is great, and the, the Beach Boys' last track. I mean, a lot of time spent on that with the harmonies and things and getting the right tone on the bass, you know, the bass with the echo delay on it, dum, 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 and uh, the, the snare. Andy played, Ian couldn't get the snare in the middle of that. There's this kind of up she rises, up, up she rises, and there's a sort of snare shuffle. And Andy played that because Ian just couldn't get it because uh, it's difficult timing. Um, every track, every track's a winner. I'm trying to think what else. There's there's a few odd ones, and of Great. course Andy wanted to um, he wanted to do the bubblegum record, you know, which was the bubblegum, the sweet and the kind of real glam rock thing, you know, um, cheesy kind of thing, and that never came together. And uh, he. I guess, you know, I think we had enough of the Dukes after with those two albums. <laughs> but there's there's two other songs on 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 that record that that I wanted to mention. Kaleidoscope. Oh yeah. Careful don't look down the wrong end. Yeah. Right? Cuz you don't know what'll happen. And uh <laughs> and Brainiac's daughter. Oh yeah. <laughs> Brainiac's daughter is Paul, isn't it? It's Paul McCartney, I suppose, with a big splash, yeah. Yeah, uh, now as far as flying in foreign sounds and things like that, what can you talk about that? Because there's that, and there's also the the sort of interstitial narration by the child. Not narration, oh, yeah. but story. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Flying in different effects. I mean, when we started, Andy came in with a load of sound effects records, you know, on vinyl, and. Um, well, I just copied them, made up a sound effects reel, you know, went through, oh, let's pick that, pick that. This is probably my training. You know, you make up a quarter inch reel with, with white leader in between each one, write it all down and say, oh, we need the sound of seagulls. I got seagulls, Jump, and you go straight to the button and on the seagulls. But what was interesting about, uh, not so much on the Sonic Sunspot, but the 25 o'clock record is where we discovered it all was I made up this um, compilation tape of various sound effects like cows mooing and dogs barking, people laughing and this kind of thing. And as I say, banded it all together and we had it there. And when we did the mix, we would let it run. And if the mix got boring, purely at random, whenever you felt like it, you could push up the effects fader but you didn't know what was on it. You didn't know what was coming through, you see. You didn't know if it was going to be cow mewing or seagulls or what, or just silence, just blank tape, you know. 
and so that was just left running randomly and no one knew what was going to be on it and there were the faders so in the middle of the mix in the middle of the solo you just give a bit of effects or you'll give a lot you know suddenly turn it up really loud and, and then when you listen to it back you'll just fall about laughing because they would always come at the right place because like a mole from the ministry in particular there's the horse um, as it goes into the middle eight there's there's a horse kind of neigh and that that was the effects tape someone just turned it up full uh, and it just happened to be there so there's a lot of spontaneity in that record you know almost like i don't know if that's the right word self-induced spontaneity like we purposely made it so that there was going to be unexpected surprises you know so we had to take chat and if it made us laugh you know it was like yeah 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 keep that keep that you know he's oh no you've done it wrong we have to do it again you know so there was, there was always a standard that we all recognized of what was acceptable if you see what I mean. of course and, and and that would have been a big part of that music at that time in psychedelia hmm. Hmm. um how did you process the voice at the beginning of mole Oh, it pans across, doesn't it? And also, it's mm. sort of, it, it seems like it's uh, pitched. Slow down. Yeah. Yeah. We kind of go, what kind of sound does a mole, you know, Andy, you go, well, I'm going to sing this like a mole. You know, I'm a mole. So what mole sounds like this? So obviously, you slow it down. Or actually, you speed it up. You send him the tape fast, and he sings in his exaggerated way. And when you play it back, it's even more exaggerated like a mole. So you just do that. And of course, it's a lot of fun. And you, you, you know, you try recording something and playing it back slower. It's, it's always funny. You know, it's always makes you laugh. You know, <laughs> it's fun. It's weird that, isn't it? Backwards, of course, is a different thing. Backwards is some weird Germanic sort of language or something. But you know, when you change the speed of stuff, you know, it's, um, it's a lot. And, and they did it all the time. The Beatles, Sergeant Pepper's full of it, you know, Paul's voice all sped up and, you know, Penny Lane and all those sort of things. Yeah. And all that stuff goes back to Les Paul with tape speed, right? Yeah. Well, you do what you can with the, with the medium, with the tools there, you know, you abuse them or you, you know, it's like, I can't speed it up enough. I need to speed it up more. <laughs> yeah. And of course, nowadays with the computer, you can do all that. No one, everyone's heard that stuff before, you know. <laughs> That's the crazy thing with a computer is that you can do whatever you want and you can also undo it, you know. Whereas a lot of the time when you, if you're going to record the vocals slowed down, that's it. You can't, you know. I'm going to send you the track really fast. And when we play it back normal speed, your voice is going to sound really slow. Oh, can I do it again? No, you, you have to do it again. You know, you can't, you can't undo the effect, <laughs> which makes it more exciting. And, I, and to me, it does anyway, it makes it more real. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very um, authentic, I think is the word. For, mm. for so much of that stuff. And it really does, you know, harken back to that, to that era in how creative it was, you know, yeah. just, just how everything was on the table and. You mean sixties? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah, yeah, absolutely. With, um, 
all those people, Norman Smith, you know, Norman Smith with Piper at the Gates of Dawn and particularly SF Sorrow, you know, with uh, Pretty Things. You, you go to that Pretty Things SF Sorrow with Norman Smith and it's like Piper at the Gates of Dawn exaggerated, mm -hmm. you know, like the acoustic, he's got the jigga jang jang, like acoustic guitars that are just, I don't know, compressed. How do you do that? You know, it's all double tracked, triple tracked with, you know, huge compression, but it's just one blast. I don't know if you heard Defecting Grey by um, Pretty Things, Defecting Grey, sitting alone on a bench with you, you know. Yeah, those are two classic examples of Pretty Things and the Piper record. Yeah. You sort of all, it all, you could go back to that and mine that forever. Yeah. And family, music in a doll's house. Now, family, we talk, you, you, oh. this is going to be a prog podcast. And I kept thinking, hang on, what's prog? You know, what am I going to do? And I kept thinking, I, I actually, when I emailed Andy and said I was going to do it, I said, well, prog to me, is the nice doing thoughts of MLS Davjack? Used to see the nice at Klutz Cleek going right back. We followed the nice with David O'List, you know, and Lee Jackson, the best group. Absolutely, the nice were just like absolute gods to us in terms of sound. And you know, David O'List and Hendrick, you know, David O'List often didn't play, you know, he just had feedback going and all sorts of stuff. And you had this, you know, you had Keith Emerson. Emerson. And of course, when Keith Emerson, and everyone, no one took any notice of Keith Emerson because he was just showing off, you know, he was like jumping on the organ, throwing knives at the Leslie. And diddly, 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 diddly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we used to see the nice any, any, any time we, we could, really, because it was such a sensational thing. Not because of Keith Emerson, but because of every, the whole thing, really. And thoughts of it, this was all before, because... I remember when Thoughts of Emily Stavjack came out, we knew all the songs. You know, well, oh, it's not so good live. Oh, that track's better, better on the record than what it is live. You know, oh, wow. it was one of those things where we'd heard the songs. And then Family Music in a Doll's House, fantastic, one of the best things. And of course, that's done at Olympic with Eddie Kramer, uh, at the same time was doing um, Hendrix and, uh, and Magical Mystery Tour, of course, because the Beatles went there and did Hey Jude, Magical Mystery Tour. Olympic, as well as all the stones and everything, Ichiku Park was all all done in the same studio and the, with the same settings as um, as family music in a doll's house. Sounds tough, you know those records. Yeah, you know, it, you 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 bring up this idea of Prague, and and for me, uh, John, I feel like so much of that music is progressive. Mm. So so you you know. Well, it's unheard of before. No one had heard it before. Yeah, and and it's it's definitely taking what had existed in pop and mm. bringing it forward into another area of the contemporary culture, whatever you want to call that, drug culture, you know, art culture. And so for me, it's almost just a general term. It's not specifically Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and and King Crimson, you know, it's progressive music. Anybody that's trying to do something different yeah. and move things forward a little bit. And I see the roots of so-called Prague, if you want, in the court of the Crimson King, it's coming on the heels of all of that great psychedelic music. Yeah. Of course, has psychedelic elements to it. So really, it just sort of all folds in together. The, and, you know, you look at XTC and some of their tracks are so 
odd and, and so forward moving of song form or melody or chords or rhythm. Sorry, but, you know, Andy, that's kind of progressive. <laughs> so, you know, and it's not and it's not an important label in, in, in a way. It's more of an important concept to me. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned family because, yeah, we, you know, John Wetton and we assume that there's there's so much uh, progressive music that's people say, oh, family's in the Prague family tree. But you're talking about a period, too, where the nice are existing during psychedelia. Yeah. So are they psych or are they Prague? You know, <laughs> we don't know. Well, uh, yeah, they're, they're a bit of everything, really. This is the nice when they first started when they released America as a single, you know, that was the single on before, I think before the album, but I used to have the single A side and B side and, um, and, uh, and family, you know, we used to see all these bands at, at Klux Clique, you know, they would all, all see them on a Tuesday night, you know, um, did you see Caravan? No, no, oh. I never saw Caravan. Crazy World of Arthur Brown with Vincent Crane, of course, that's pretty prog with pretty playing and stuff. Mm. Um, ooh, <laughs> I, I should get the list out. I can't, I can't remember who else there was there. Probably lots. I, you know, uh, John Lucky, I could speak to you for hours and hours, but uh, I feel like we've covered so much today and, and I, I, I hope we can come back and do a, a part two sometime. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, we can, uh, well, whatever you want to cover after this, after the, uh, after the Dukes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you know, please do come back and, and thank you so much for sharing all your okay. knowledge and experience with us. It's just been great chatting with you. All right. Great, Greg. All right. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> okay. Thank you, everybody. Bye.